Hello, friends, and welcome to Into the Word, a radio and online program committed to reading, loving, and living the whole counsel of God. I'm your host and Bible guide, Pastor Paul Carter. Your word is a lamp unto my feet. If you have your Bible with you, I'd love for you to open it now to Exodus chapter 29. At this point in the narrative, you're probably starting to notice the remarkable amount of space given in the book of Exodus to the matter of worship. As I've mentioned before, the basic structure of Exodus is fairly straightforward. The first half of the book tells the story of how God redeemed the people of Israel out of Egypt. And the second half of the book contains the instructions and commands that God gave to these redeemed people in terms of how they should live in a way that corresponds to their new identity and status. Saved people must live differently. That's the big idea. But within that big idea, we are surprised by just how much detailed content there is with respect to worship. We expect more law, more morality. And there is law and there is morality, but there is even more content here about worship. It's about two to one, actually, in terms of ratio. There are just about two chapters on worship for every one chapter on law and morality. Apparently, worship matters. God's people are not just different in terms of their morality. They are different in terms of their essential orientation. They are living God-word lives. Morality is actually downstream from that fundamental reality. And we tend to miss that as modern readers. Being saved is first and foremost about knowing God. It's about hearing from him and responding to him. And everything else flows out from there. So we have to get our big rock in place. And in the second half of the book of Exodus, worship definitely is that big rock. I'm sure you're beginning to see that and to feel that as we make our way through the text. This is now the second chapter in the worship section dealing with the priesthood. In chapter 28, we learned about the vestments, the uniform of the priests, most particularly the high priest, but also the priests in general. And now here the focus shifts to the matter of their installation. Hear now the word of the Lord, beginning at verse 1. Now, this is what you shall do to them to consecrate them, that they may serve me as priests. Now, let's just pause here. Notice that the priests are identified as the servants of Yahweh. I mentioned in the last episode that the priests were an odd sort of ruling class. They were dressed like kings, but they functioned as servants. Remember, the tabernacle was intentionally reminiscent of the homestead of a wealthy nomad. When you went to the home of a wealthy nomad, it was the joy and responsibility of the host to prepare the meal. He wouldn't do this himself. Rather, he would entrust that task to his servants. The priests were the ones turning the meat on the barbecue, literally, in the tabernacle. So here's the key point. The fact that they serve does not make them the servants of the people. God says right here in verse 1 that they are his servants, and that makes all the difference in the world. Douglas Stewart says here, since the tabernacle was his house, those who worked there on his behalf were his servants. They helped the guests 
but they clearly worked for Yahweh, not for the people who came to visit Yahweh, closed quote. The application of that principle to the Christian life ought to be fairly clear. Jesus did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And yet, if you've ever read the New Testament, you know that Jesus was a person of remarkable authority. The disciples did not tell Jesus what to do. Peter tried that once, and it did not go well. Jesus was in charge. He was a servant, but he was responsible to God for his mission and function. And the same thing applies to us as a kingdom of priests. We serve all, but we do not take orders from those we serve. We take our orders from God. If you forget this, you will forfeit your usefulness in the kingdom. You must humbly serve all those who come to the Lord, and yet you must never take your marching orders from those you serve. You are the servant of the king, not the servant of the guests. That is a subtle distinction, I grant you, but I think you will find it makes all the difference in the world. We jump back into the text at the end of verse 1. Take one bull of the herd and two rams without blemish and unleavened bread, unleavened cakes mixed with oil and unleavened wafers smeared with oil. You shall make them of fine wheat flour. You shall put them in one basket and bring them in the basket and bring the bull and the two rams. You shall bring Aaron and his sons to the entrance of the tent of meeting and wash them with water. Then you shall take the garments and put on Aaron the coat and the robe of the ephod and the ephod and the breastpiece and gird him with the skillfully woven band of the ephod. You shall set the turban on his head and put the holy crown on on the turban. You shall take the anointing oil and pour it on his head and anoint him. Then you shall bring his sons and put coats on them. And you shall gird Aaron and his sons with sashes and bind caps on them. And the priesthood shall be theirs by a statute forever. Thus you shall ordain Aaron and his sons. The installation ritual involves three animal sacrifices and also cereal offerings accompanying the ram of ordination. Now, we don't have time to parse every aspect of this ceremony in detail, but let's just notice that a person is installed to the priesthood by means of water, oil, and blood. First, he must be washed, then he must be clothed, then he must be anointed, and then, as we begin to read in the next section, he will require the application of blood. Verse 10. Then you shall bring the bull before the tent of meeting. Aaron and his sons shall lay their hands on the head of the bull. Then you shall kill the bull before the Lord at the entrance of the tent of meeting, and shall take part of the blood of the bull and put it on the horns of the altar with your finger. And the rest of the blood you shall pour out at the base of the altar. And you shall take all the fat that covers the entrails and the long lobe of the liver and the two kidneys with the fat that is on them, and burn them on the altar. But the flesh of the bull and its skin and its dung you shall burn with fire outside the camp. It is a sin offering. As I mentioned, there are three animals associated with this ritual. Verses 10 to 14 describe the bull of sin offering. 
Here, Aaron and his sons lay their hands on the head of the bull, which would symbolize the transfer of their sins to the head of the victim. We see in this the beginning of a lesson that God is teaching about the principle of substitution. This concept was embedded within Old Testament religion and, of course, reaches its climax in the person of Jesus Christ upon the cross. The Apostle Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5.21, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Theologians refer to this as imputation. Our sins were put on Christ, just as the sins of Aaron and his sons were put on the bull of sin offering. Thus we are made holy and suitable for service in the house of the king. Thanks be to God. Verse 15. Then you shall take one of the rams, and Aaron and his son shall lay their hands on the head of the ram. And you shall kill the ram, and shall take its blood, and throw it against the sides of the altar. Then you shall cut the ram into pieces, and wash its entrails and its legs, and put them with its pieces and its head, and burn the whole ram on the altar. It is a burnt offering to the Lord. It is a pleasing aroma, a food offering to the Lord. Verses 15 to 18 here describe the ram of burnt offering. As to why this offering must come after the sin offering, described in verses 10 to 14, Matthew Henry says, hopefully here, the sin offering must first be offered and then the burnt offering, for till guilt be removed, no acceptable service can be performed, close quote. I think it'd be hard to disagree with that. Verse 19, you shall take the other ram, And Aaron and his sons shall lay their hands on the head of the ram. And you shall kill the ram and take part of its blood and put it on the tip of the right ear of Aaron and on the tips of the right ears of his sons and on the thumbs of their right hands and on the great toes of their right feet and throw the rest of the blood against the sides of the altar. Then you shall take part of the blood that is on the altar and of the anointing oil and sprinkle it on Aaron and his garments and on his sons and his sons' garments with him. He and his garments shall be holy and his sons and his sons' garments with him. You shall also take the fat from the ram and the fat tail and the fat that covers the entrails and the long lobe of the liver and the two kidneys with the fat that is on them, and the right thigh. For it is a ram of ordination. And one loaf of bread, and one cake of bread made with oil, and one wafer out of the basket of unleavened bread that is before the Lord. And you shall put all these on the palms of Aaron, and on the palms of his sons, and wave them for a wave offering before the Lord. Then you shall take them from their hands and burn them on the altar on top of the burnt offering as a pleasing aroma before the Lord. It is a food offering to the Lord. You shall take the breast of the ram of Aaron's ordination and wave it for a wave offering before the Lord, and it shall be your portion. Verses 19 to 16 here describe the ram of ordination. 
It is the third of the three offerings associated with the installation of priests. Commenting on the process as a whole, J. Alec Montier says here, The order in Exodus 29 is the order of individual need of being forgiven, wholly dedicating oneself in gratitude to the Lord, and rejoicing in fellowship with him and each other. Closed quote. I think it's probably helpful for us to see that. There is a process. There is a sort of well-worn path in the Christian life that all truly saved and spirit-led people tend to travel on. First, we must deal with our sin. Sin is the great burden. Guilt is the great issue that must first be resolved. We think of Christian in Pilgrim's Progress. He had to be forgiven, and he had to know that he was forgiven in order for him to move forward in the journey of faith. Following that, there's a process of consecration. There is a separation from sin and a dedication to love and service. This doesn't happen overnight. It is generally a two steps forward, one step back sort of process. By one degree of glory to the next, we might say, but it does happen eventually and inevitably in every true believer. And then increasingly, as we are consecrated, we are empowered, equipped, and deployed. This is exactly what the Apostle Paul said to his protege, Timothy, near the end of his earthly life. In 2 Timothy 2.21, he said, Therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from what is dishonorable, he'll be a vessel for honorable use, set apart as holy, useful to the master of the house, ready for every good work. Close quote. Friends, one of the things I think is so important for us to understand is that while it is absolutely true that we are saved by grace, through faith in Christ and not by works. Nevertheless, that does not mean that there is no value associated with effort being applied to the process of our own growth and sanctification. Good works, cleansing ourselves from sin, those things won't make you any more saved, but they will make you more suitable for intimate service in the house of the king. That's what's being said here. That's the principle. And we see that principle carried over wholesale into the New Testament. Thanks be to God. Verse 27. And you shall consecrate the breast of the wave offering that is waved and the thigh of the priest's portion that is contributed from the ram of ordination from what was Aaron's and his sons. It shall be for Aaron and his sons as a perpetual due from the people of Israel, for it is a contribution. It shall be a contribution from the people of Israel, from their peace offerings, their contribution to the Lord. Wave offerings were waved, not right to left, as it were, but front to back, toward the altar and the priest, as a way of symbolizing that they were being offered to God. The, the breast and thigh of the offering was then, however, given to Aaron and his sons, to the priests, as their perpetual due. Meaning, this was how priests fed their families. They received a portion of what was sacrificed on the altar. The symbolism here, I think, is worth noting. To give to God was effectively, at least in part, to give to the priests. And that reminds us that God identifies with his people. What you do to them, you do to him. What you give to him, you give to them. There is that connection. And we see that in the New Testament. Think of what Jesus says to Saul Paul when he's traveling down the road to Damascus to arrest and harass the early Christians. Jesus 
knocks him down, shines a bright light in his eye and says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Acts 9, 4. You see that? To persecute Christians is to persecute Jesus. What you do to God's people, you do to him for good or ill. We think of the parable of the sheep and the goats, for example. At the final judgment, Jesus makes clear that what you have done unto the least of these, my brethren, you have done, as it were, unto him. God identifies with his people. So you give to him by giving to his priests. Now, that includes ministers and missionaries, of course, but it's bigger and wider than that. According to the New Testament, all Christians are part of the priesthood now. We are a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. So the principle here is that we give to God by supporting Christian work and Christian people. God receives that as a gift of worship unto him. That's good to know. Verse 29. The holy garments of Aaron shall be for his sons after him. They shall be anointed in them and ordained in them. The son who succeeds him as priest, who comes into the tent of meeting to minister in the holy place, shall wear them seven days. Just notice here that the priesthood was hereditary in the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, you were born into the priesthood, whereas in the New Testament, you are born again into the priesthood. So we have to be careful how we transpose this principle as we move from Old Testament to New, but we certainly see continuity here. Verse 31, you shall take the ram of ordination and boil its flesh in a holy place. And Aaron and his sons shall eat the flesh of the ram and the bread that is in the basket in the entrance of the tent of meeting. They shall eat those things with which atonement was made at their ordination and consecration. But an outsider shall not eat of them, because they are holy. And if any of the flesh for the ordination or of the bread remain until the morning, then you shall burn the remainder with fire. It shall not be eaten, because it is holy. This was a sacred meal and was not to be treated in a casual or profane manner. The instructions here are very similar to those given by the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 11 regarding the Last Supper. That meal, too, should only be eaten by recognized priests, that is, by true believers. If that meal is eaten by outsiders, by unworthy or unprepared people, there is there, too, a promise of punishment. Exactly the same principle. There are lines and boundaries in the Bible. There is a distinction between inside and outside. That isn't one of the things that changes as we move from Old Testament to New. Verse 35. Thus you shall do to Aaron and to his sons, according to all that I have commanded you. Through seven days shall you ordain them, and every day you shall offer a bull as a sin offering for atonement. Also, you shall purify the altar when you make atonement for it, and shall anoint it to consecrate it. Seven days you shall make atonement for the altar and consecrate it, and the altar shall be most holy. Whoever touches the altar shall become holy. Very quickly then, we should just notice two things here. First of all, notice that this ordination ritual was to be repeated over the course of seven days. Now, 
Whether the whole process was repeated or just the sin offering part isn't entirely clear, but it was a careful process. One doesn't become a priest thoughtlessly or easily. That's the principle. Notice also that holiness is assumed to be contagious. Whatever touches the altar shall become holy. The goal is for priests to be changed by their contact with God and for people to be changed by their contact with priests. Lord, make it so. Verse 38. Now, this is what you shall offer on the altar. Two lambs a year old, day by day, regularly. One lamb you shall offer in the morning, and the other lamb you shall offer at twilight. And with the first lamb, a tenth measure of fine flour, mingled with a fourth of a hin of beaten oil, and a fourth of a hin of wine for a drink offering. The other lamb you shall offer at twilight, and shall offer with it a grain offering, and its drink offering, as in the morning, for a pleasing aroma, a food offering to the Lord. It shall be a regular burnt offering throughout your generations at the entrance of the tent of meeting before the Lord, where I will meet with you to speak to you there. These verses refer not to the ordination service, but to the regular ongoing duties of the priesthood. They would offer sacrifices, some regular and some occasional. Here, the regular burnt offering is described. Of course, as Christians, we want to note that the regular job of the priesthood was to offer the lamb and to hear from the Lord. Thanks be to God. Verse 43. There I will meet with the people of Israel, and it shall be sanctified by my glory. I will consecrate the tent of meeting and the altar. Aaron also and his sons I will consecrate to serve me as priests. I will dwell among the people of Israel and will be their God. And they shall know that I am the Lord their God, who brought them out of the land of Egypt, that I might dwell among them. I am the Lord their God. I appreciate how Nahum Sarna understands this closing paragraph. He says, The wealth of technical detail relating to the physical structure of the tabernacle, its constitutive elements and its ritual and practitioners, may tend to obscure its original higher purpose. Therefore, the chapter closes with an emphatic reaffirmation of its religious and spiritual content, values, and meanings. Quote. I think it is true that the wealth of detail sometimes in these texts blinds us as modern-day readers to the essential truths that are being proclaimed. Marvelous things are being said in this chapter about the presence of God, the glory of worship, the thrill of intimacy, and the privilege of service. Thanks be to God. And thank you for listening to End of the Word. If you're interested in additional resources or previous episodes and series, you can find those, of course, over at the website, www.intotheword.ca. I hope you found our new app and are making good use of it. We're so excited about that. And we would love for you to make use of that. Download that. You can connect with us on Facebook. I hope that you do that too. You can connect there. We post daily encouragements and conversation starters, user reflections. Great way to get connected. Hope to see you there. And I hope to see you again real soon.
right here for another episode of Into the Word. <laughs>